0: Welcome, everybody, to another irregular episode of Powering Bitcoin. Um, today, I have the great, great pleasure to be joined by Mr. Sean Connell. Hello, Sean, how are you?
1: Great. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, no problem. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to come and uh, join my my little niche podcast here, where I like to just explore the depth of technology when it comes to Bitcoin mining and everything around it. Um, there's a lot of podcasts that um, go sort of into it superficially I know that sort of beginning when I started my podcast around that time I know that uh, where you have also been a guest Peter McCormick started exploring the energy field as well a bunch Um, so there's a lot of overlap and um, I'm just um, gave me another you know opportunity or push towards getting more into the technical depth so um, all my all my questions feel free to go as deep technically as you want. Um, And I know that there is a lot of depth there. But before we get started, um, Sean, can you give me the current block height, please?
1: Sure, the current block height is uh, 787982.
0: Perfect, thank you. Our last difficulty change was minus 1.72%. So it got slightly easier to find blocks. We had 350 now, hash rate wise, according to Luxor and our hash price is back up to 82.5, um, which is a nice increase, considering that a few episodes ago only, I think we've been at 65 or something, sort of the real <laughs> real pain area for, for anybody that's that's um, powering ASICs. Um, but yeah, Sean, you are executive VP uh, for everything power at Lancium, um, and I think you are the... Perfect guest to speak to, actually, about the intersection between um, power and Bitcoin. You said in the pre-talk you're located in Canada, correct?
1: That's right. I'm in Calgary, Alberta, Canada.
0: Cool. Um, So it's a bit earlier for you uh, than for me. Um, I'm (laughs) still in Cape Town, but the connection is... What what time is it for you right now? Uh, 20 to 10. 20 to 10. So
1: it's 20 to 2 for me here
0: in mountain time. Yeah, the sun is shining over there now. It is. Like, that was shining <laughs> shining here earlier, even in winter. Um, yeah. All right, Sean, do you want to get into what Lancium does a bit and what your job is there? Again, I think most people will have, will have heard what you do. So, I mean, feel sure. Free to and maybe
1: just you want. to touch on as well, you mentioned about Peter and his podcast and uh, his show and kind of, you know, going down the rabbit hole of energy. So it's really been neat kind of observing for the past year where there's this realization that... Uh, you know, energy is the same as kind of like is Bitcoin. And it's needing to understand those kind of intersections. And, you know, tying into kind of what I do is a you know, Lantium is is as an energy tech company. So it's, you know, we are not a, a Bitcoin company per se, we're, we're a company that, you know, enables an energy transition by developing uh, software and infrastructure that essentially allows you to convert uh, large loads into power generators in reverse. And, and why that's important is, you know, we're going through an energy transition where you're losing a lot of flexibility from resources that are going to be retiring, such as, you know, coal and natural gas, and you need to, you know, pick that up on somewhere else. So on the load side, so that's where Lansing comes in is, you know, creating flexibility from these loads. And, and Bitcoin mining is just really the, the uh, an ideal end market that allows you to give that much flexibility and control over a load that enables this energy transition.
0: Would you say that Bitcoin mining is the perfect consumer in any grid?
1: Um, it depends, right? And I think that most would want me to say yes right away <laughs> that it is. But really, it uh, it depends on kind of the market design, right? And kind of how that market has been designed that will incentivize those types of um, loads to interact with their grid. And I'll give an example. And, you know, we've seen this. Uh, show up in some moratoriums in certain locations is that you know we're we'll get into this more in in, in Ercot and how there's such a big mining present in Ercot but you know the takeaway of Ercot is that there's a competitive wholesale market for power and there's a real time price that every 5 minutes there's a change in price and you can decide to pay that price and consume the energy or not and so that's a really an ideal market design where miners can choose to turn offline when power is scarce and others need it, um, but consume when power is cheap. And you go to another area, such as um, I saw an article in the newspaper the other day for New Brunswick power, which is on the east coast of Canada. Um, and essentially, they're looking into a moratorium on mining because you know they see the benefits of adding a new load to their system, but it's not a, a competitive wholesale market where there's a price of power that's published. So if you're a miner being located in somewhere like New Brunswick, Canada. Or Hydro Quebec, which is in Quebec, is like if there's not a price signal or the right demand response programs to incentivize you to turn offline. To we're just talking about the flexibility, right? And so, like for you to give that flexibility by other, you know, providing some type of backup uh, capacity or you know ability to turn down your energy. But it's it's really saying that the market design will drive um, the behaviors of those miners, and so miners are ideal in locations where there is an actual posted price or there's programs that are in place by the utility that allows for them to capture that flexibility, that resource. And and I'll just kind of add on one part more is like a less ideal outcome is an area that just has a flat rate of power and there's no price signal, there's no demand response programs, and that miner is just consuming around the clock regardless, even when the power is scarce because there's no price signal. So that's kind of a long winded answer of saying, in most regions, mining can be the perfect load if the market design is right. But in some markets that don't have the design, they have to figure out ways to integrate them into that system.
0: Absolutely, that that is something that I just at the end there that that I definitely would have would have mentioned now as well. Um, seeing that I live in a country where that free price signal doesn't exist at all because it's all centralized and in government hands. When it comes to to energy control um, and energy distribution and generation, right, everything is in a um, in a in the hands of a utility that's state owned and government owned, and there is no free market, there is no spot market, there is no futures mm-hmm. market, right? There is a maximum amount of energy or, or price for energy that you can charge, and mm-hmm. that um, that system is is failing. But but we'll get to that just now. Um, so you, you just mentioned the, the, the free price signal. I think people under, under appreciate how, I mean, we're talking about a perfect balance of generation and demand at all times. And mm-hmm. it's a very, very, very complex system that I don't have to tell you. Um, and so I just want to highlight the, the importance of having a free price signal that acts independently. Based on the demand and um, generation that you have in that certain moment, right? To help uh, balance out the grid in a, in a natural fashion, because it's near impossible to have uh, an interconnected grid such as Canada's or the, the the one in ERCOT, where where you where you centralize the control over everything and and sort of um, you know do a top down. It's in my eyes, un- impossible.
1: Maybe I'd add is that in the U.S two thirds of the country are in competitive wholesale markets where there is a price signal for power. And a third are you know traditional vertically integrated utilities, probably something similar to where you are, uh, a similar type of uh, construct. Um, and what I'd share on this is that in the competitive wholesale market, you create the price signal so that the end consumer gets to change the behaviors of kind of turning off paying less, but providing that flexibility back. Whereas if you go into the one-third, you know there are opportunities then for those control areas that don't have competitive markets to essentially you know create tariff structures that allows them to have that control so they get to be the ones controlling these loads so it's like how do you use the existing you know construct of the market and still recognize the flexibility and so there's a lot of opportunities for you know for example where where you're located for that grid operator is that if they had the ability to control the loads themselves versus waiting for somebody to respond to a price signal? So there are opportunities, and it's kind of we're in this new, you know, uh, time where you need to find ways to add this flexibility. So there's a lot of, you know, control areas that don't have competitive wholesale markets that are, are trying to find ways to integrate them, and you know there is a scenario where they are the ones that would offer a lower cost energy for the ability to control that load. So we're kind of seeing that progress.
0: In the, in the one-third that you mentioned, do you already see a difference in performance?
1: Sorry, do I see a difference in?
0: In performance and energy security? Because the, the South African case is also very much influenced by government corruption and theft. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's not the case for the one-third that you mentioned just now.
1: Yeah, to my knowledge, they're very similar. And so, like, um, you can think of think of the United States as a whole bunch of different control areas and a control area can be like the competitive wholesale market so like PGM, MISO, ERCOT those are all one control area and then you can have this you know traditional vertically integrated utilities that are acting as a as a control area themselves and so every control area within uh, North America has standards that they have to have procurement for reliability which is they need to have a certain set of ancillary service products that they're procuring either through a competitive market or through their own means of how they're going to serve that. And so since all of these control areas are procuring those um, grid reliability products, <clears throat> which are ancillaries, that they are all are, you know, I, I've read some treetop tree readings have indicated that, you know, the reliability of um, something like a, an ISO such as, you know, PGM and ERCOT is, is similar to the reliability of these others that aren't competitive wholesale markets.
0: Okay, that's interesting, because you would expect that, you know, um, if there's no free free market for for energy, that that somehow is hindered.
1: Yeah, and, and price can the, be different, right? So like, yeah. yeah, price is different than reliability. Like this is saying, you know, which areas um, have less load shedding incidents, right? Like it, it's, it's not definitive of saying, you know, this type of market structure is more reliable. Uh, however, each of those different market constructs can have different pricing right which yeah. is again different from reliability
0: yeah just on that topic i mean we we had to reschedule our last appointment because i i was uh, scheduled to not have any load available at my connection where i'm staying um we have an inverter at home just like many people um that can afford it in this country it's not something that's very widely spread right um similarly also if you if you um ride around cape town it's it's astonishing how few solar panels there are really, harnessing the sun that even, you know, shines in winter. Um, part of that, I think, is just import tariffs and how expensive solar technology has gotten through um, through government programs, also elsewhere in the world where, where governments can afford to subsidize um, solar technology and all of that stuff. But, yeah, going back to that, there's, a, there's an app on my phone that tells me exactly when my power is off. Currently, we're at stage six load shedding in Cape Town. Um, this is the whole the whole of South Africa. There are parts, you know, where where there is no load shedding, where generation at that sort of feed-in point, um, it, where generation is sufficient for those areas to not mm-hmm. be cut off. But <coughs> most large cities in Cape Town uh, in in South Africa will have this problem. And yeah, there's just just uh, you you can see it. Just now we had Labor Day, um, and a Freedom Day on Thursday, um, going back to the de- first democratic elections here in South Africa, and so there was this, a long stretch of sort of a weekend bridge holiday and holidays where where it was fine, right? Then power would go off maybe at, at two at night uh, for a bit, but now that business is picking up again, you can see the missing uh, generation capacity in the grid is is, is really uh, giving people a hard time, and now they're turning power off again for twelve hours a day.
1: So how does your rate work are they you given an example of um 10 cents a kilowatt and they get to interrupt your power half the time or or do they just do it whenever like how how does that work for you guys
0: they give you a schedule so they set a schedule top down right there's a a map of different zones in cape town it's the whole of this the whole of the city and the suburbs um and then they will just go by schedule so give everybody sort of a uh, an even outage over the days you know so that's it's not one zone that's always off between eight and ten right they will sort of spread that out and and share the pain among among the citizens um, pretty much yep. power is as i said uh, the power prices are set i'm not 100 sure what they are i think it's um around 10 cents um to mm-hmm. do the conversion currently um but pretty much everybody has a has a Prepaid meter at home, right? You can buy power mm-hmm. over apps. You can buy power with your bank account in, in the supermarkets. You go in, you you give your meter number, and then you then you um, buy a certain amount of prepaid electricity. You get a sixteen digit code, punch it into your meter, and then you get the balance. But um, <laughs> according. To, to the zone that you're in, they will shut you then off at different times. And then just the lights just go out and we're lucky that we have uh, gas cooking <laughs> available.
1: <laughs> that's wild. It's just, that's super fascinating to me. So like, it's, it's almost like kind of the previous cell phone minutes So you're, you're prepaying your meter for, yes. are you buying kilowatt hours? Is that yes, where you're exactly buying? Like that.
0: I mean, you, you buy, because most, most people don't have concepts of that. Right? So mm-hmm. where, where, where you can buy um, mobile, mobile minutes on your phone, that's very easy to understand. But how much is a kilowatt hour? Mm-hmm. Like, not everybody understands that, right? If I tell you, okay, I need, if I want to power my kettle for one hour in a row, I need like three kilowatt hours, people, people won't understand mm-hmm. that. So, so what happens is people buy a certain amount of rands um, of fiat mm-hmm. currency uh, mm-hmm. in, in, um, in electricity. Which does unfortunately not cannot act as a form of money to stay on the Mm -hmm. Bitcoin uh, topic because it's uh, meter specific.
1: So I just want to stay on this for a second because it's super fascinating for me. Is that like um, so? If you're prepaying your meter and you bought 100 kilowatt hours, uh, and you're not on a time of outage, and your 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 time is your usage is up, do they just stop your meter and the power goes off once you've reached your kilowatt hours?
0: That's it. If you're on zero, power meter goes off. So, 1,500, yeah. it's 80, maybe 90 US dollars. Don't quote me on that. Um, yeah. Gets me 615 kilowatt hours, I believe, right around there. Hmm. Now, people can do the math. Super I'm not cool. going to do it live. That's always, always yeah. Uh, dangerous. Um, <laughs> yeah, but do yeah that, that's, that's how it works. More. I mean, currently, I think we're missing. I saw because I recently went to a conference in Johannesburg, uh, the Solar and Future Energy Show. We had talked about the future of Bitcoin mining being the future of energy infrastructure (laughs) in in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think somebody quoted that we're missing like, uh, I think it was 5,000 megawatt of capacity Mm -hmm. uh, in the grid to have everybody on constantly. Yeah. But it includes everything. It includes businesses, mines, um, everything really. And, you know, you can give all the, you can talk about it broadly, but it doesn't give you a perspective of what that really means for an economy if power is not mm-hmm. available twenty four seven, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm talking to to uh, carpenters who can't tell me when my product is finished because they don't know when they have power. Talking about people who 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 bake things. There's a lot of entrepreneurship in this country, right? Where people mm-hmm. sort of take care of themselves and have their own businesses, their side hustles, and all of that stuff. Um, and they, you know appliances break because powers will power will turn off. Insurances have stopped insuring against surges in your home because it's mm-hmm. you know it's a higher power, they can't do anything about that. Um and it just really makes the whole foundation, it feels like, of a of a of a society very, very brittle um, and very, very unsure. Um I know we're going off yeah. a, off a tangent here, um, and, but, but I think that's. Fine.
1: Are people buying batteries, home batteries now for? manage yes. like is tons. Yeah, we yeah. we
0: recently bought a, a lithium battery. We had lead acid before, mm-hmm. so we bought a lithium battery um, for our home. You know, get a deeper um, DOD mm-hmm. for the battery. Uh, it's the we bought five kilowatt hours for two thousand dollars. I want to say, including everything, mm-hmm. including installation. Yeah. Um, but prices are going up. Because demand is picking up, and you know, as I said earlier, um, it's now winter time on the on the southern, in the southern hemisphere, right? So mm-hmm. um, even though for me as a German, it's still quite warm here in winter, people get cold. Mm-hmm. They you know use more energy, just like anywhere else in winter. Um, and we're 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 supposed to hit some energy professionals quoted to me that we, we might hit stage nine, stage eleven in winter time, when and that then means 15 16 hours without power during the day and then you know you get to a point where where you are um giving people um the power outages at peak demand times right right now it's still manageable like power will go off between two and four that's not too terrible i have a laptop we have a battery for our internet you know everything works fine it's all good but once you sort of get to a point where power is constantly off between eight and 12 and then in the morning mm-hmm. between six and nine, that becomes really annoying because then kids have to go to school. People want to enjoy yep. their evening entertainment. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Um, but maybe let's, let's get back to, to what you have to <laughs> talk about, Sean. Um, you already. <laughs> no, alluded I, you to. Know,
1: there there has been many times where I've been on a podcast where somebody knows, uh, you know, quite a bit about an area in power that, you know, I'm really. I don't know anything about. It, so, I, yeah, I know it's. It's. Just, it it just is really
0: that. for me as well. You know, coming from a, a country where we didn't have a power outage in the last ten years, um, yeah, it's it's very surreal. What do you mean, power goes off? I mean, I literally yeah. have an app that tells me, <laughs> like you in <and> area <laughs> so and so. So this is your schedule, right? And then yeah. to the T, the meter goes off. Wow, cool. Um, All right, we'll toggle back yeah ready let's let's go um Lance, you already said you do um what did you call it a um what we, kind we do of power orchest-
1: we do well the words that we do is power orchestration right okay. which is orchestrating different loads and generation yes. uh to essentially you know deliver low cost uh and also you know certain types of customers are wanting green energy so how do you marry potentially matching of wind and solar output with the consumption you have on site, with batteries, and with Bitcoin miners, so it's really the the orchestration of all these resources now that can really, for the first time ever, you'll get to a point where you can be creating this green energy product uh, through that orchestration and also low cost energy for for certain customers. Yeah.
0: And did Lantium start doing this before Bitcoin mining became as big as it is today?
1: Yeah. So Lantium started in 2017, and the original concept was. Around uh, compute, and the company started with the idea that there's this map of frequency of negative price energy across the U.S. And you can see this cluster that happens in the center of the country and down into Texas and in the and uh, the west northwest uh, of Texas, up in the Panhandle. And it was kind of the the idea of almost being like a storm chaser, where the idea was is that there's going to be you know far more wind and solar coming online that can meet the build out of transmission infrastructure, so you could have these trailers <laughs> with compute uh, that you can move from one site to the next chasing negative price energy, right? And um, so that was the idea and it was crazy at the time, but as a, you know, the initial idea gets you to the next you know, thing that has visibility. Um, and then they started doing this on, um, on Bitcoin miners because um, what they realized was, is that um, you could uh, be able to dial up these miners up and down, uh, Quicker. And, you know, the company had taken a, uh, somebody from our company had done a trip over to China to go visit, I believe it was Bitmain, and to talk about uh, the firmware to make changes that, you know, folks are benefiting from now uh, that allows you to have more control of those miners so you can ramp them up and down. Because originally it was about matching kind of the output of wind uh, and solar outputs. Um, But then, you know, quickly we realized that. You know, there was one month that we we have a, um, a technology center in Houston where we do a lot of our R and D, and one month we had a power bill where we were getting paid for the power. And we We're kind of scratching our heads and wondering what that was. And it turns out we had a, a fixed block energy hedge that would have been done. So say call it like a one megawatt fixed block around the clock for fifty dollars. Um, and the way that works is it settles against the real time price of power. So if you're not consuming power for that hour. You're not buying that spot price of energy, but you're settling out your financial hedge. And so there was a month that we were getting paid because, you know, the price was so high and we were, we were offline for that. It was just hard to realize is like, well, you can start to change the behaviors about these types of, you know, these loads that have a lot of flexibility like miners. Um, and then afterwards, um, you know, we were working with uh, uh, MP2, Shell as our our qualified scheduling entity. This is kind of the entity that interfaces with ERCOT for the scheduling and settlement of a load resource. And they came to us and they're like, do you know what? Like this has been talked about forever, but nobody's ever been able to, you know, qualify as this controllable load resource. And we think that you guys can do it, right? And it and the technical requirements are, you know, almost well, they're identical to power generation, in that you need to follow a base point instruction from the grid operator. Right. So be at 10 megawatts, 9.9, 9.8, 9.7, follow a, you know, a base point. And the second is that you need to be able to do frequency response. And what that means is that there'll be a change in the grid frequency. And then within a a certain amount of time, you need to be able to respond based on your load and to address that frequency change and to turn down your load automatically. Uh, And it's it's quite challenging and very difficult to do. And this is specific to ERCOT because it's islanded. And so long story short is you know, through of this storm chasing compute trailers to finding out that you can change your consumption for dynamic pricing to participating in ancillary services and then qualifying as the first controllable load resource that was kind of the journey to where you know we're now on power orchestration across many types of resources uh, but that's how that's how it started
0: okay so so you're basically using compute and bitcoin mining or are there any other technologies that that factor into your portfolio
1: Um, You can use any type of load that has the characteristics where you can do fast ramping to meet the the specifications of a certain ISO for their requirements for participating in these ancillary services.
0: Okay, and this is also what you um, summarized under smart response technology, right? If you go to your website, there's a short video there. That's, that's pretty much what you just described. The, the process that you talked about is very similar in Germany, right? You need that pre-qualification and then you go into an open market, into an auction. You say, this is my mm-hmm. price for the demand response and you either get triggered or you don't. But um, yep. in, in some, like there's different levels of demand response, right? There's a very, very fast level, um, a secondary and a tertiary level. Whereas the sort of first two are, are completely automated because that's not in the hands of any human, right? That's all automation. Yep. Um, and that's what you need to be able to pre-qualify for. And it, it, is it similar in that sense also that you get paid for the capacity even though you don't get triggered? So if you if you have capacity that could be triggered, you already get paid. Does it does it yeah. work in a similar fashion?
1: That's right. So think about like insurance, right? Like a uh, or actually start with a generator a generator is 100 megawatts and they sold 80 megawatts for energy so they're producing energy and they held back 20 megawatts so that the grid operator needs them they can ramp up right okay. so they're foregoing the opportunity to sell energy to provide this ancillary so like they're getting paid that insurance all the time and if they need to call on them they'll go up and they'll provide that insurance but even if they don't provide it they're still getting compensated cuz they can and so that's a requirement for 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 these control areas is to procure this Bundle of ancillary services that allows the grid to function as we know it in North America.
0: Okay, and and if you had to if you had to um, think about the sort of total total energy delivered via or, or controlled via via demand response, how much percentage um, would you say is Bitcoin mining versus everything else that you guys do?
1: Yeah, so there's in there's multiple different types of ancillary services in ERCOT, um, and the main one is called responsive reserve service, which is approximately 3,000 megawatts. There's a non-spin service, um, which is kind of like backup power to this, the first one I mentioned, responsive reserve service. And then the last one is regulating, which is, you know, every, you know, the grid operator is gonna dispatch um, generation to meet demand and they're gonna have little variances. So they need to have this buffer of call it, you know, 300 megawatts to ramp up and down for their little variances. so, on the responsive reserve service is the main uh, ancillary service that a lot of these miners participate in. And it's broken out into two parts. So, the first part is they allow loads that are non controllable to participate in half of the ancillary services, right? So, about 1,600 megawatts for non controllable loads that just have shunt trips, right? So, they're on or off, right? It's, it's binary. And then since the grid operator needs to be able to control, like the essentially the um, the two largest contingencies on the grid, like if those happen, they need generation online that can you know ramp to meet that. So the other half comes from generators or control and controllable loads and batteries, right? So backing out to you know which what are Bitcoin miners uh, providing is on the controllable load side, there's about hundred to 150 megawatts of that 1600. Is being provided by from from miners and so Lantium is the operator is the owner or operator of all of the load only controllable loads in ERCOT um, and so that's so 150 in the, the category of you know generation controllable loads batteries on the other side on the 1600 megawatts for loads is there's approximately um 7, megawatts in ERCOT that's registered as non controllable loads that will participate in these programs. And of that number, you know, Bitcoin miners could represent maybe 2,000 megawatts of that. So I'm, I'm sharing this because every day they go in to submit an offer for what they can provide for this ancillary service. And most times it's, you know, call it 5,000, 4,000, 5,000 megawatts of load competing for only 1,500 megawatts of 1,600 megawatts of ancillaries. So they're going to get a pro rata share, right? So an example is a Bitcoin miner that's offering in 10 megawatts and it was, you know, three times oversubscribed, they're going to get awarded, you know, 3.3 megawatts. So it's not, you know, super easy to back out and say of the 3,200, how much are miners participating in? You can say of the 3,200, you know, there's about 100, 150 from the controllable load they're participating in. And on the 1,600 that's for loads, well, they're probably about, you know, 500, 600 megawatts because they're getting pro rata shares. Of that. Interesting.
0: Okay, and and the 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 end bill to to pay um, that demand response is paid by the by the electricity bills of the end consumer in the end, right?
1: Yeah. So you know, take a time machine back um, ten years ago, is ERCOT would be procuring three thousand megawatts all from generation, right? And that cost is is a, t- a cost that's added to your energy bill because you're getting energy but you're getting reliable energy, right? And so you would know firsthand there's a big difference between energy and reliable energy, (laughs) right? And so, you know, so that's a portion on their bill and it usually works out to be about 10% of the energy price-ish, right? And so 10 years ago, all those revenues were going to generators because they were competing to kind of provide these ancillary services. And now you fast forward to today and you've got half of that being provided by loads, some portion by these controllable loads, some by batteries, and so it's more resources competing to lower the price of ancillary services saying, hey, I can do that for less, right? And so that's, that's the shift.
0: It's also a complete different market structure. It's completely, it's, it's way more bottom-up. Um, and mm-hmm. I mean, grids were designed, as you said, uh, years ago for, for top-down electricity generation and demand at some point, right? Um, that's at right. Point B. W- where do you situate um, your controllable loads? strategically in the grid do you situate them close to the generation source or do you do you rather uh, situate them close to the other demand
1: yeah so what we're seeing is so like the the control is actually at the load site so wherever the mining site is is where you're having control um, and you know similar to other types of flexible loads that are location agnostic they're going to go to where there's a price node that's cheapest Right. And, you know, for example, if you take a a map of uh, all the United States and you look at, say, kind of, you know, where are the large deposits of wind and solar? You'll see this price map and, you know, the the lower price energy because wind and solar is priced at zero. So when they're offering the power, it's it's low. Um, So you get these lower settlement prices in the areas of wind and solar. So you're going to see these flexible loads like Bitcoin mining. We're seeing, you know, the, the genesis of, you know, hydrogen electrolysis. You know they're going to find these pockets where there's cheap power. That's usually in areas where there's a lot of wind and solar, and not enough transmission to push those those electrons into the areas of the high demand centers, right? So you know, backing up to your question is like where are these loads locating? Is historically when you know Bitcoin mining started up, I think there was less knowledge and know how about how to operate these loads because the revenues were so large in mining at the start it didn't matter about you know how to you know, fine tune and really kind of be competitive, right? Uh, yeah, just, so the evolution you turned it on,
0: you made money. Yeah.
1: Yeah, right. You, you put it on a print and press, right? And so now there's competition and you need to compete by procuring the lowest cost electron. And that means being flexible in your energy consumption, participating demand response programs, stacking with other types of services where possible. And so we're seeing these kind of this movement now from say anywhere you want to locate to now to where is the best location on the grid. That has you know, and it's we see this as in these renewable pockets um, that you have access to this low cost energy.
0: Um, I believe it was uh, Nick Carter who once described Bitcoin miners within the concept of this landscape that had these hills and nooks and crannies, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think he described Bitcoin miners as these, yeah, consumers who go into the nooks and crannies first. They're almost like water; that's where they flow first. You know, that's Mm -hmm. how I sort of envision right now in my head how how Bitcoin mining goes to these pockets that you called them within the grid where where power prices are lowest because of what's Mm -hmm. around them. But again, it goes back to what we said in the beginning. How are you going to control top-down a system that's increasingly more decentralized, more decentralized generation, uh, more decentralized loads? The, The whole sort of demand structure also shifts, right? Whereas before years ago, we were able to you know you know be able to forecast the demand after a football or soccer match or whatever you want to call it um mm-hmm. some sports event right and you're like hey turn the generation up a bit because the mm-hmm. game's starting <laughs> you know yep. that completely changes like load profiles change individuals they, they change businesses change we have um mobile working people work maybe different hours not your your not your nine to fives anymore um So it gets really interesting and and ever more complicated um, in the future, making these free price signals, in my opinion, increasingly important. Yep. Um, Yep. All right, we covered load response. We covered the the sort of two ways that, that load response happens. You have natural price signals. Miners just make more money, not consuming energy than they do. That's the one. And then you have the demand response programs. Is there any other advantages or benefits to one of the other? Do you prefer um, one method of 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 load shedding or demand response over the other one, or does it not really matter to you?
1: So I'd say that, like, you know, the same way generation has different levels of flexibility. So an example is <clears throat> um, a coal plant could be a 500 megawatt coal plant, but to run It needs to have a minimum base load of 200 megawatts and then can run to 500 megawatts and has a ramp time of you know five megawatts per minute whereas you could have a a natural gas peaking plant um, which you can turn on instantly and you can go from you know zero to 100 megawatts in you know three minutes for the full amount and you need to have a minimum base load of 10 megawatts so like they offer different flexibility you know technical flexibility characteristics And so, like, the same can be thought about with with loads, right? And so, like, loads have different levels of flexibility. And so, for example, like, um, I've often referenced, like, a steel plant. You know, a steel plant, you know, it's got a very large uh, uh, electrical uh, uh, requirement on the arc furnace, and that requires, like, 95% of the entire steel plant. So, if you turn off that arc furnace, you're going to get all that power back, but you get two hours or so of turning that off. And you likely need to call ahead of time because there's logistics of, you know, inbound logistics of the materials to make the steel, outbound logistics on what you're producing. So there's a whole connection piece, right? Um, now you move that into into Bitcoin mining, which is, you know, the inbound logistics is the power, which is completely interruptible, and the outbound logistics is your Ethernet cable that's for hashing, right? So totally interruptible as well. And then you go into the middle, and now you're into the, the timing of saying like, how fast can you ramp this? And so I've you know shared this analogy the other day is like, you know the you know smart response for, on Bitcoin miners as an end market is kind of like a a 300 mile per hour race car, but the track can only go 200 miles right per hour. That's the cap, and so the reason for that is, you know, the grid has real constraints, right? And saying that, like you don't want these miners ramping up super fast and you know going zigzag up and down, up and down, up and down, like. Grids have ramp rates for power plants for reasons, like some of it is just physical limitations, but you wanna control it coming on, and control it coming off. And so for example, um, this Bitcoin mining load can go from 100 megawatts to five megawatts in call it eight seconds, and then can go from five megawatts to 100 megawatts in you know, uh, 12 to 16 seconds, which is it's unbelievable. But you don't want somebody there kind of with a switch with a very large Bitcoin mining load or any end market that's flexible like this Of you know turning it up and down, so you want to have that controlled. So you know these Bitcoin mining end markets offer such you know uh, great flexibility that they're really wanting to you know speaking on behalf of Lansom on this is you know like want to self police with these grid operators and say hey we should have some controls in place so that you know we're putting limits on how fast we can ramp this because this car can go too fast, right? And it's, it's it's which is great for frequency responses, but less great for just if you're just responding to a price signal that's. Know five minute price. You want to have a controlled ramp down yeah. and controlled ramp up.
0: Interesting. I don't know if you just saw my, you can see me, my camera flicker, power just went off. So now we're on battery. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> um, yeah, interesting. Wow. I mean, the, the analogy is, is very, very fitting. Um, I tried to make people understand this energy professionals um, a, a, across the board. Here had, had the, There's no idea about what Bitcoin mining can bring to the table. Right, and if if I explain to them, look, I want to, um, I want to pockets find pockets of energy that nobody else wants, because they can't consume it. Right, that's the power that I want. That's what we can use. Um, people still hear, hey, we have a power power generation issue in this country. How how come you're not promoting energy demand? We don't have any any energy, right? Um, and that simple idea of of price signal. <clears throat> Um, that that makes such a big difference, also in, in demand response, and you know, making sure that that car doesn't go too fast. Mm-hmm. It's not understood. Like this is this is not understood. Um, the, the, I'm trying to to get into renewables as well. I, I know you've 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 tweeted something, I think in, in November um, about the build out in renewables. That that concept is. Um, widely spread here as well, like we need more renewables, more renewables. Yes, there's sort of uh, the Northern Hemisphere, Western civilized uh, or or developed nations um, are pushing this also in South Africa, right, exporting the coal to Germany, but the Germans want us, want the South Africans to use more renewables. Anyway, um, and so, so, but there's no grid capacity, right? Lithium batteries, Mm -hmm. way too expensive in my eyes, hydrogen. I don't see that being as the future, right? But still we want to build up new, more renewables, but I'm asking, and that I didn't get a, a proper answer, right? I'm asking these these energy professionals who will finance all this renewable capacity if you have got nowhere for the energy to go, who, mm-hmm. who will finance these projects if they can't produce enough kilowatt hours to reach an ROI that's acceptable and what's... What do we need? Do we maybe need a highly flexible demand that can turn off and on, as you just described, um, Mm -hmm. in 300 miles an hour?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, this goes back into, again, like um, um, every region is unique in kind of the market design. And also, um, you know, there's federal um, involvement in energy across different countries. And so the example is in the US, well, here's an example. It's like a, a solar or wind PPA in ERCOT uh, can cost you approximately you know, $30, $35 per megawatt hour on a 10-year PPA. Just ballpark, and I'm I'm wrong, but I'm close. Um, where if you went to Canada and did a renewables PPA, um, you know that same PPA in Canada would be about $50, $55. Um, and so the reason for that is that in the US is that their methodology for you know, priming the pump is that they've got uh, something called an investment tax credit and a production tax credit. Um, an investment tax credit is that um, the renewable developer will get back 30 percent of the capEx of their project to help with their economics. And on the production tax credit is that uh, for wind assets, I believe, uh, is that they're going to get an additional 25 dollars per megawatt hour as a federal uh, as a tax credit. Uh, for producing that energy, so it makes the economics of these things work out because one can zoom out and say, how can a project that has a LMP price of uh, twenty dollars be profitable, be economic? And you got to piece together the other subsidies that were part of that, either through this production tax credit or investment tax credit. But you know, you pair those two together, and you know, they're going to get the price even further lower. And at the point. They become so low, even with the production tax credit. That's where it's not un- it's not economic anymore. You need to have transmission lines now, or you need to have new load that's coming into these areas to improve the economics. To kind of essentially say, we're going to consume the power when you know nobody else wants it. So all the cheap megawatts, because you know I said in in Cape Town or in South Africa, I would I would guess that there's time that you guys are flush with power, but you know it's times when not everybody needs it, right? And so you're on power outages. During times of scarcity, when everybody wants it, so how do you create a customer that only wants to consume power when nobody else wants it? And I'm using a bit of a stretch on this because you know, Bitcoin miners like their break even right now is about a hundred dollars ish per megawatt hour, right? So, like, they're you know, they'll consume up to that price point and then turn off below, which was actually evident during the winter storm that just came through here in December, where about two gigawatts came offline, and ERCOT reported that. The price level they came off was seven tiered to seventy to hundred dollars per megawatt hour, but you know the point is is that you know this new type of load, call it Bitcoin miners, hydrogen electrolysis, but these flexible loads, right? They're they're only going to run to their economics where it's profitable, and then they're going to turn off above that. So like this is a, an ideal um, load to marry with a, a resource that's in, located in some area that you know costs a lot to run transmission wires to go across. And I'm not saying you don't do that, but I'm saying that you can you can locate the load and then you can actually run the wires later on but you know you're creating exactly. this additional demand for these 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 renewable sources
0: using bitcoin mining not as demand response um or not as a consumer of last resort but in this case as an anchor right for for these renewables to sort of hold on to um and to get a ppa going i mean the minister of electricity i don't want to harp on harp on the uh, south african side of things too much but it just fits too well um he opened this this trade show or conference by saying there's 800 megawatts of renewables waiting to come online, but there's no grid capacity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, somebody quoted, and I'm, I'm, you know, that, that, is, that, that would have to be fact-checked. That and and renew- it's important both- to know,
1: yeah, it's important to know, like it depends on who pays for transmission upgrades, right? So like, example, like if you're a renewable developer and you're responsible for the reliability upgrades to a transmission system, Right, the onus is on you, and you know you've got to pay for that to get the power to the grid. If it's reversed, and you know that that cost is rate based, well, then you know those costs need to be borne by the consumers, and you know those are very big costs incremental to the renewables project, right? So, but you it just have very cuts, large. It clues. just cuts
0: out. It just cuts out so many renewable projects if they were responsible for getting the energy to the grid, because then the the PPA that they would require, right, the price that they would have to charge. To make that worth their while is is too high. And this is also what you just mentioned, the the subsidization of of renewables in countries like the US, Canada, Germany, um, pretty much Europe, really. You you can do that if you have a currency to support it. To the extent that we want to build out renewables here and build out the grid. um, I think South Africa builds out 300 kilometers of transmission lines every year. Um, and someone calculated you need 1,400 per year, if you want to reach the 20 or the, the 20 2035 uh, 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 goal, right? But somebody has to pay for that, all of these subsidies. And yes, you can't do that. If your currency is already currency, is already on the knees um, and heavily devalued. Like it, it lost 50% of value mm. over the last 10 years against the Euro and the dollar. So, and then you run into mm. these issues where you really need free market incentives um to 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 you know promote that um that generation out, uh output that renewable um, build out in november 2022 i believe it was you um sent a tweet that i bookmarked back then um uh, and have have read but not unbookmarked yet um and now i have the speak the chance to speak to you so Definitely wanted to to make that part of um, this episode as well. Um, the tweet was around renewable build-out in the ERCOT grid and what what sort of happens with, with uh, stranded capacity and all of that energy that needs to go somewhere. Um, let's go into that a little bit. Do you know what the, um, off, off the top of your head, or maybe if you click on the link that I just sent you, what's the plan build-out uh, for renewables? And is that so sort of on track?
1: Yeah, so that tweet from November... Uh, was from, I believe it was a report that came out at the start of 2021 that was called a West Texas Export um, uh, Study, I think it was called. And essentially what it did was it put together a forecast of you know the wind and solar that they, uh, ERCOT published report, that they believed to have the amount of wind and solar that would be coming to the grid for projection year 2023 and for 2030 so we now have the benefit of a little bit of time passing and to see kind of how good they were at the forecast and then, you know, sets the stage for what are the implications if they called 2023 right for 2030. Um, so back in 2021, the total amount of wind and solar in West Texas alone was approximately 30 gigawatts and the load was approximately five gigawatts. Uh, so that's five gigawatts around the clock pretty much because there's a lot of industrial load in West Texas. Uh And so that means that on days when it's windy and or sunny, that you can have large amounts of wind and solar being curtailed because you can only export about 12 gigawatts of that power across from West Texas into the major load centers, such as Houston, Dallas, San Antonio. Um, And so then, so that was 2021, so 30 gigawatts um, of wind and solar, five gigawatts of load and 12 gigawatts exports. And so in 2021, we had about 10% of the hours were negative. Uh, So that means that prices were below zero and you were paying to produce energy. And this is where I shared about this production tax credit. You know, the way it's set up is that the price can be negative $20 and they're paying you $25 for the subsidy that you still continue to produce. Yeah, it's a weird concept to wrap your head around. I get it. (laughs) Um, It's
0: like the negative oil price. If you remember that time, like somebody has to take the oil Mm -hmm. and I will give you Mm -hmm. money to do so.
1: Yeah, in in the physical, right? And the physical is very important, right? Mm Because physically things have to, you know, be stored or produced or curtailed. So the physical world can dislocate Um, and there's real world constraints in the physical world. Um, So for 2023, they're forecasting, uh, it was about 38 gigawatts uh, of wind and solar. And then you have increased load, so call it, you know, six, seven gigawatts. But the point is, is that, you know, you get an eight gigawatt increase in wind and solar and you know, maybe a gigawatt or two in load. And we're starting to see that for Bitcoin mines that are being located there. Other types of loads uh, down in kind of like in oil and gas related loads are coming there as well. Um, and that West Texas export is, is in that scenario, is binding 20% of the time. So I'd say that this year, you know, we do have approximately 38 gigawatts of wind and solar. It might be a touch less than that. And I believe so far as 10% of the hours this year have also been negative. And we're bringing on, more uh, solar capacity for the end of the year, and so like this is a pretty good projection about kind of what um, you know what's coming to Texas. And you know the last stop is that in 2030, um, you know they're forecasting kind of based on the the interconnection queue and where they see projects coming online. Is they had about 74 gigawatts of wind and solar, and you know again your export export from transmission is not growing that much, maybe a gigawatt or two, and you're load a gigawatt and two. But you know the point on this is they're also forecasting. You know the the amount of counties um, that would have you know negative price energy and this curtailment value and it's it was a very large number um, that was there and um, you know I, I believe the the total amount in 2030 was like 67,000 gigawatt hours, uh, which was like 28 percent of that uh, wind and solar and that's a very large amount of power that's just essentially built but is being curtailed because there's no home for that power and so that's kind of you know what happens when there's a, a massive build that Can be kind of fueled by this kind of a subsidy to make some of the economics work, but there comes a point where it you've got this massive excess uh, uh wind and solar
0: 2030, 67,000 gigawatt hours of curtailed energy is forecasted. If there wasn't bitcoin mm-hmm. mining, yeah,
1: yeah based, based sure, on the report,
0: I mean, let, let's just let's just see, okay, let's like call it 60, whatever, yep. if it's you know. If there's no Bitcoin mining, what's yep. the what's the second best alternative? What do you do? Because the you reach a point also where there's not enough not enough um not enough demand capacity to make use of that negatively priced power.
1: Yeah. So I'd say that you know, mining is a is a great customer, and we both believe that. Um and I'd say that, you know, there are new emerging flexible loads that are kind of coming up. And so I mentioned electrolysis, we're we're seeing this. Um, machine learning AI compute that requires a, a very significant amount of compute. And so we're we're now living in an era, it feels like, where these loads are, if there's a proper price signal, can go to those sources, right? And each of these loads are going to have different levels of flexibility. And the example of the compute is it's, you know, their needs would be something like they want to have green energy, but they're less flexible, right? Where these these miners are very flexible, right? And so they offer something that is, you know, quite unique and 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 desired. Uh, Looking at grids, it right?
0: from from the tree chop, as you mentioned, do you model out that far in the future? You know, what, what happens when um when there's so much cheap energy now that, that Bitcoin mining, you know, the economics don't really work out anymore. Where where do you reach that point of concern? Hash price will drop if there's you know tons of competition now making use of all of that curtailment. Do you have any thoughts around this?
1: Yeah. So, you know, mining economics is similar to kind of like other end markets, so call it like hydrogen electrolysis will have a capex that they have to spend for the equipment and miners have capex for the, you know, the, the racking solution in the mining equipment. And so like if that mining equipment has a very low cost, you know, the economics are significantly different, right? And the example is, is that, you know, uh, a year and a half ago when uh, mining revenue per megawatt hour was... I think it was around $500 per megawatt hour, Um, (laughs) right? Like these was a hundred dollars TeraHash was trading for. And so like a megawatt of miners was $3.3 million, right? And so now you can buy that same megawatt of miners for call it 500,000, right? So it's been significantly reduced. So That means that you can operate these machines at a lower uptime because you don't have to pay back that massive capex spend. So if you can think about like, you know, miners are just going to consume power when it's cheap and they're economic to do so. If you have a really high capex, you know the economics don't work because you need to have a high uptime. But in a in a market where you can actually get good pricing for your for your equipment, right, you can be in an environment where you can say, hey, we're only going to consume energy when it's below fifty dollars, and that could be a seventy percent uptime, which makes the economics work, right? And so, like the model really depends; it's really driven by your your capex spend to see if these projects make sense. Uh, and I think that, in the future, is like you know these mining projects can be profitable on just you know really the bottom feeder of energy, right, because they don't have this big capex spend to pay
0: back. You might get to a, to a situation where you're now powering miners um depending on how negative the energy is priced
1: and stack that with your ancillaries, right? like if you're providing something in like ancillary service, like essentially your 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 cost of energy is you know. The price of energy subtract your ancillary service revenue, right? And so you net those two, and that's the cost that you paid for your energy.
0: I always talk about in past episode, I always talked about, you know, and that sort of goes um, also into sort of the next and last section that we're going to visit briefly. What happens, you know, down the line in the future, like this is a, as we said, global competition, is it those miners that make use of um, waste heat? Um, and therefore significantly reduce their their operations is it those miners that find the most negatively priced energy in the future that get paid the most to um, suck energy out of the grid uh, it's gonna be really interesting and this is also why I love this space so much you know coming from an energy background um uh, just like you said earlier this sort of mind-blowing dynamics that take place now that you have this super flexible demand that changes everything, right? And in 2030, who knows where, where hash rate will be? I mean, we're at 350 now. Um, hash rate grew by 70. You know, you, you talk about nation states potentially entering the game as well. Um, and so, yeah, I think you you guys at Lansium are at the absolute forefront and, and in such an exciting uh, space of energy um, of the energy industry itself so so it'll be uh, yeah very very interesting to, to see what happens there
1: yeah and, and just kind of like as a um a bit of a plug for lantium right so if you're a miner that has uh, an operation in some location in you know, north america or, or in even another year uh, markets that have competitive wholesale markets you know where we have a power desk that essentially does the optimization and the decision making for how do you kind of participate in these markets and get that low cost energy so like we talked about you know there's your cost as your energy subtract your ancillary services so like what's the best way to participate in those ancillary services that still provides you flexibility that if prices are high that you can still dispatch accordingly etc but you know the punchline is is that we provide those services for the the optimization so the decision making but also we do licensing for our software so that you can actually use our technology and we'll operate it for you and essentially helping you with delivering a low-cost energy so for folks that you know are interested you know feel free to reach out for that
0: what you guys are doing requires a whole different type of intelligence right there's 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 sort of one um, type of intelligence where you where you understand what formant is you you operate these mining machines you know about cooling and all of that other stuff right but then connecting your data center to uh, the live energy market and to what happens at the moment and to then operate these, these data centers optimally, mm-hmm. um, and sort of eking out every bit of, of revenue that you can, that's really what you guys are providing in a nutshell, as I understood it. And definitely, I mean, I mean, go, it's going to be all in the, in the show notes, obviously. Um, very interesting to follow, follow what Lanthium does.
1: Yeah, you're exactly um, right. Yep.
0: I said, yeah, very, as I said, very different part of the energy industry that requires a lot of specialization. Um, around around this stuff um but made a bet sean i don't know how many days are we out do you know off the top of your head it's not i don't fair. know it
1: was when was his bet it was it was 90 days and i think was what was three the for
0: that uh, three weeks ago or something like that not sure anyway so so not that not that much time left for mm. bitcoin to hit 1 million us dollars um for mining, what do you think the implications are there?
1: Yeah, and I mentioned this before on um, Peter's show. And it's kind of, you know, the connection for Bitcoin price and mining economics is my background in, in energy is, you know, the lesson I've learned is, you know, commodity prices converge, right? And meaning that, like, if you can buy a barrel of oil for $20 in Alberta, and it's, you know, $120 in Texas, like, they'll find a way to build a pipeline to get that $20 oil down to the hundred and twenty dollars oil, and the prices will be pretty much the same. At some point, with just the cost of transportation, um, and so mining is the same way, right? There's a price of, of Bitcoin, and then there's the cost for mining, right? And so if the economics of mining are so good, right, like five hundred dollars a megawatt hour, thousand dollars, and you know the cost of power itself is about you know fifty dollars, so those are very big margins. It's going to trigger behaviors, right? That people are going to do, and so you know, tying back into um, belagi's bad is like, you know, a million dollar Bitcoin means that every machine that has ever been made is now economic again. It's profitable. You can plug in your computer, your laptop, right? You can be mining on your laptop and making money because your electricity bill, even though it's so small, right? It could have been, you know, ten dollars electricity. Well, you made a hundred dollars because you know the, the the reward for the portion of mining you did on that was so high, right? So everybody plugs in, everybody plugs in, right? And so now you're getting a large draw on the network of of power because the margins are so high and that's okay, right? Because these markets can dislocate for for a while until the price signal is gone, right? So you get this million dollar price signal. So the price of Bitcoin right now is about $100 per megawatt hour, right? And then you do like whatever that is of a multiple of current price of Bitcoin, You know, call it a 30X, your economics are 30 times better, you're going to get everybody chasing that right and so again that can happen in the short run but there's a very much implications for that and what that means for flexibility is that for a miner that has a low break even point so call it 70 you you make ancillaries by consuming that energy and selling the 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 ancillary at the same time if the price of energy is very high right well you don't to get that ancillary, you have to be consuming that high price energy, right? So like it's, it's not in your best interest often with a low break even to sell ancillaries when energy prices are high because you have to consume that energy. And so the punchline on this is that um, currently Bitcoin miners are acting a lot like economic dispatch where they're turning on and off with the real time of price of energy because it's fluctuating around the break even. And so they're participating less in the ancillaries because if the price of power is really high, they don't want to have to consume that energy. To be able to provide that ancillary so everybody there's a lot of folks right now they're just doing economic dispatch with choosing when the time is right so this is, again the importance of having a power desk and optimizations like when is it right for me to sell ancillaries and when is it not <laughs> right and so in this future world is if the price goes so high everybody just wants to run base load they have no price response <laughs> right and so like that entire narrative that is true which is miners are turning off at 70 dollars, goes away and they become like every other load on the grid which is they'll consume to the cap of the price of power and they will not be price responsive. They can sell ancillaries, right? Because they want to consume energy anyways, which is still a benefit, but you'll lose a lot of that price responsiveness from, from a grid because the economics are so good.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, that recently dropped article by the New York times, I guess partly becomes true because now nobody turns off. Right. Um, miners consume an endless amount of or, 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 or very high amounts of power. And then and then prices go up, but only to a point until the difficulty adjustment kicks in and makes it so hard uh, for Bitcoin miners to to find new blocks that, you know, they will have to turn off again because, you know, it it, it finds a it finds a, a a break even or or middle ground somewhere. But who knows where that would be at one million? Um, let's say the the US dollar hyperinflates tomorrow. We get one million dollar Bitcoin. Um, Sure, there will be a ramp up. Everybody will everybody and their grandma will dig out the mining machines from from ten years ago, use their laptops, as he said. Difficulty will jump up enormously. And then, you know, where the next um sort of adjustment pendles in, nobody would know. If it would still be too high, um and energy prices would still go up, nobody knows. That's impossible to forecast, I think, right?
1: it's sometimes easy to like um easier for me to like zoom out and think like 100 years in the future which is you know the essentially the the new issuance of the blocks um kind of is near zero right it's kind of very small numbers um and you know it's easy for me to see a world in 100 years from now given kind of this renewables build out of wind and solar that there's a, a massive amount of renewable energy around the world and these mining facilities are just oscillating on and off based on the price of energy and it needs to be below a very low number for them to run and there'll be so many of these facilities embedded around the world that like it truly is the buyer of last resort where it's just bottom feeding for call it like the you know under $20 a megawatt hour right so they've got this buyer of last resort that will always consume it but as soon as you go above $20 it says too rich for me right so it's very easy to see that in that future and in that future like you can have you know the bitcoin mining network right now is about call it 15 gigawatts of energy plus or minus, you know, a few gigawatts. Like you can see a scenario where the Bitcoin my network is powered by, you know, 200 gigawatts, but it's just oscillating right on and off. So like it might actually be 600 gigawatts of, of actual capacity producing 200 because it's just using when the wind is, is blowing or the sun shining When it's just, you know, throttling, but it's kind of like that base buyer and it's a global base buyer, so.
0: Yeah, interesting times ahead. Um, I think this is a good um, good point to close it out, Sean. Last but not least, I have to ask, This is, that's what I sort of end every episode on. Um, I will state that Bitcoin doesn't use enough energy. What What are your initial thoughts around it?
1: Depends that? on the time, right? <laughs> and I'd say that like, you know, given... Yeah, um, 100 years in the future, you know, it's not using enough energy. For right now, you can say that like it... Maybe it is using enough energy, right? And it's also, I kind of back it up to like, what kind of energy is it using? Because there's a difference between, you know, scarcity energy and abundance energy. And I would say that, you know, Bitcoin's not using enough abundance energy right now. And there are some areas that Bitcoin's yeah. using scarcity energy and that'll yeah, change.
0: That. Very good, very good point. Yeah. I have nothing else, nothing else to add. Bitcoin doesn't use enough abundance energy. Um, that's the first. Well done. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Sean, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to nerd out with you about uh, energy in general and Bitcoin mining. Um, as I said, most people will know who you are and know how to find you. But uh, in case they do not, um, let them know um, what you do again and where to find you. Um, and maybe sure. also what Lansium need, if anything.
1: Yeah, um, sure. So you can find me. I'm on Twitter at, at Sean Energy. So at S-H-A-U-N Energy. And then for, for Lantium, you can find our company at Lancium And if there's any folks out there that has, you know, um, an interest in kind of seeing if Lancium can help them anyway for their, their companies, feel free to direct message me. My DMs are open and love to hear from you.
0: Yes, that's how I got in touch with you as well. Sean, thank you very much for your precious time. And I hope to talk to you sometime again soon. Thank you.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks for having me.